Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Jordy Lee, Senior Research Associate at the Payne Institute for Public Policy at the Colorado School of Mines. Jordy will give us answers to some key questions about rare earth minerals, which are used widely in clean energy technologies, including wind, solar, and energy storage. He'll help us understand what rare earths are, whether they are literally rare, how they're mined and processed around the world, and their geopolitical implications. It's a fascinating topic, so stay with us. Okay, Jordy Lee from the Payne Institute at the Colorado School of Mines. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you for having me. So Jordy, we're going to talk today about rare earths and uh, rare earth elements. We're going to sort of define what those are and talk about why they're important in the context of clean energy. Uh, But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on energy and environmental issues. So how did it happen for you? Uh, So I have a petroleum engineering degree from Colorado School of Mines. Um, And I remember when I was about to graduate, I started asking a lot of questions about the future of oil and gas. Um, And my professors thought it was, you know, interesting. And they they sent me to to the basement of Engineering Hall, which is this the oldest building on campus. And I ended up talking to Morgan Bazilian for for an hour about, um, you know, how the oil industry was shaping up. And then he, he mentioned that he was looking for for a writer for an academic paper he was trying to write. Uh, and he asked me to, to help him with it. And then I loved it. I loved asking those questions and kind of chasing those answers. And then uh, I ended up joining the Institute after I graduated. Yeah, fantastic. And and the Payne Institute, it is located in that that old building, right? The engineering building? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a, the oldest building on campus. It's like a, a beautiful old orange kind of brick building. Um, it's been there, I think, almost 150 years now. So it's it's really cool, and uh, yeah, the Payne Institute's uh, in in the building with uh, the Critical Materials Institute, the CMI, and uh, a lot of great programs there. So it's it's really cool to be part of that program. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, let's get into our conversation now and um, talk a little bit about rare earth elements um, and and try to understand you know, what they are and how they play a role in uh, clean energy in particular. So can we start off with, uh, you know, just kind of defining the term? So can you give us like a working definition of rare earth elements and help us understand how they're used widely across the economy and then how they're used in the energy sector? Yeah, so rare earth elements refer to a group of 17 elements that have um, similar electron configurations. That means they have like very distinct physical and chemical properties. Um, they're like that that bottom kind of floating row. There's like two floating rows. If you look at the periodic table, they're like the top of that floating row. So they're kind of weird. Um, and the name apparently comes from the difficulties that 19th century chemists had in, in separating the elements from each other. Um, and so they also denoted that rare earths are usually stable as earths, which refers to oxides. So it's just, you know, oxygen with, a, with another mineral. Um, so most of the rare earth's crust is made of oxides. So what you end up getting is you have like these really difficult to separate earth essentially where you, so you end up getting rare earth elements. Um, and that's kind of where the, the name comes from. And they were using that name before they started, you know, categorizing elements into their cool categories. Um, and their special properties allow for them to provide magnetic and strength characteristics to different end use products or for them to act as catalysts for a different chemical process. So that means if, if you know, if you add them to, to different metals or if you, 
use them when you're making different processes. Uh, the end products get like superpowers, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> so some common uses would be making magnets. You get really strong magnets, um, lasers, you know, stronger, lighter metals. Um, they use them in optics. Uh, so a lot of different technologies and different electronics use them. Um, you'll see some in your cell phones, like on the screen to make the glass hotter. Um, sometimes, and then, uh, you know, just different electronics, the department of defense uses them for missiles. And, um, so they're using a lot of really modern technologies and they, they do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, and there's a lot of them, right? There's, there's 17, so they have different uses. So for clean energy, they're primarily used for really strong magnets, um, especially for newer wind turbines. So the traditional wind turbine, everyone can kind of picture one. It's like these three spinning blades, um, which are then connected to this gearbox. So it's connected to a bunch of gears that spin a generator inside and generates electricity with, with copper windings in a magnetic field. When you have a wind turbine, you have this giant spinning fan with a lot of gears and moving parts, um, and they're under immense strain. So it's not really, uh, you know, very stable. They, they, especially with like wind turbulence. Um, so the gears kind of get broken and they're, they're one of the first parts to fail. Um, but if you use magnets, if you use these, these cool rare earth magnets, um, what happens is you have like a lot simpler of a wind turbine. It's, um, you know, it doesn't have all these little gears in it. And that's really important for when we're placing these in the middle of the ocean. You know, if you're placing a giant spinning fan in the ocean, it's in your best interest to make it as robust and simple as possible. It's kind of a pain to send, uh, you know, a mechanic out there to, to go fix, you know, giant gears, um, in the middle of, you know, the North Sea or something. Uh, so, so that's why they're, they're becoming really important for, for renewables in, in wind energy, because they, they take kind of this, uh, complex machine and it's like, yeah, let's just use the magic of magnets and it'll make it simpler. Um, and also in, in electric motors for electric vehicles, uh, they also use permanent magnets. Um, so, you you see a lot of talk for for rare it's a discussion of um you know the big three are, are wind turbines and electric vehicles and then uh photovoltaics so solar panels but um solar panels kind of have, have other uh, material issues than than rare it's um so for the ones we usually talk about there's usually two um they're neodymium and dysprosium and those are the two of the 17 that that are really popular for making rare earth magnets and they're the ones that people usually talk about in the context of renewable technologies Great. That's really, really helpful. Um, and, you know, one thing that you, you pointed out that uh, certainly I didn't understand when I first started learning about this subject is that the, the name rare earth elements doesn't necessarily mean that they are rare in, in the sense that they're not necessarily scarce. Um, but can you speak to that question um, uh, directly and help us understand, you know, um, how, you know, how the resources are distributed around the world and, you know, what the resource base looks like? Yeah, yeah. So that is something that you know a lot of people will mention is that rarities aren't that rare, um, and that's how a lot of people view kind of how common different uh, minerals and materials are. Is they they look at the Earth's composition and they're like, well, you know, it's it's pretty common in the Earth's crust, so we shouldn't be worried about it. Um, but that's that's not really what's important for rarities because um, they're relatively well dispersed. So where you might find like you know large amounts of copper in a single area, or you might find like these, you know, huge veins of gold. Um, for earths, that's not really the case. They're very spread out and embedded in other rocks and minerals. Um, they're still a lot more common than gold and a lot more common than, you know, platinum group metals, um, but they're relatively rare in that they're, um, 
you know, very well spread out. So if you could think of it as like a, like a dusting of salt, as opposed to like, you know, a big rock you put on your table. Um, uh, so we do know of some sources that, that we could potentially extract even in the U S you know, and we've been doing it for a while. Um, there's even talk of, you know, geothermal brines, um, seabed mining, there's little, you know, nodules on the bottom of the ocean. Um, people even talk about recovering them from, uh, from coal, but it's more of a, a processing economics balance problem than it is, um, you know, resources reserves problem. Uh, cause especially when you consider that, um, the type of rock or deposit then tells us about the, the composition. So there's a couple different rocks that each have a different composition of, uh, of rare earths. So I mentioned that there are 17 of them and they, they often occur, um, jointly. So what you might find is you might have a rock that has, you know, 10 of them together. Um, and then you might have one that has a different 10. So they're not always the ones you're looking for. And that's, that's kind of, a a difficult issue and that's the the secret truth of, of why rare it's so rare is that it's very difficult to process and separate them so mm-hmm. you know china has some of the largest uh reserves so aside from having to compete with you know china kind of supporting this industry and all their environmental concerns and um and finding high enough rare earth concentrations you want processing separating the individual rare earths is a really challenging process technologically and it's very expensive and it's very energy intensive and it's a multi-step process you can't really expedite or, or do in large quantities so so that's why it's really difficult you know it's a problem that most people don't understand is that the processing is the hardest part mm-hmm. not necessarily finding it um so everyone's talking about opening up rare earth mines and that the u.s shouldn't worry because rare earths aren't that rare um, and if they're a little bit more informed they'll start talking about um how the U.S. is opening rare earth mines and processing facilities and separation facilities and that the U.S. shouldn't worry. And if they're really well-informed, then they wonder, you know, what the processing facilities are going to work on, what they're separating, um, what they're going to do with different waste, and how they're going to compete with the insane costs from, from you know, competing with an entire country like China to make rare earths. So right. um, it's kind of a multi-tiered problem, and it always kind of worries me when uh, I see those headlines to say, you know, rare earths aren't that rare. And it's like, that's true but they're really complex and they're really difficult and refining them needs mostly site-specific processing refining. And that's why we sent everything to China. So we do have a rare earth mine in the United States. It's, it's mountain pass mine in California. Um, but it's so difficult and cost intensive to, to process and separate them into individual rare earth elements that they end up shipping it to China and then China does it for us. So that's why we have this huge dependence on China for rare earths. Not necessarily because we can't make them, but because it's such a pain and such a expensive process and chemically intensive and it's, uh, you know, electricity intensive. So we can mine it just fine. And then we end up just shipping it to China and then China sells it back to us with a bunch of tariffs and premiums. Uh, so it's, it's not really a good system. So be wary if you ever see those headlines, you know, rares aren't that rare. You should right. see if they're like what else they're saying. Uh, <laughs> right. That's really interesting. So you mentioned the uh, waste products from processing these rare earths. Can you tell us a little bit more about what some of those local environmental risks might look like, uh, whether it's from the mining process itself or if it's uh, uh, more from the refining side, as you were mentioning? Yeah, so um, as far as I understand it, it's uh, separation and processing. Um, that's kind of the big concern. Um so there's, there's multiple steps to separation and processing. Um, and the last kind of final separation is the difficult one. But um, what happens is when you separate and process the ores and minerals, um, they often 
contain uranium and, and thorium, which is named after the god of thunder because you know, <laughs> Thor. So cool. Yeah. 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 There you go. It's got a um, big uh, mallet or whatever. Yeah, the hammer of Thor. Yeah. The, right. Um, so when you separate and process them, you end up with uranium and thorium, which are radioactive. So they end up falling into a category of uh, waste called technologically enhanced, naturally occurring radioactive materials, um, which is as scary as, as most people think it is. You know, it's just super concentrated, technologically enhanced radioactive waste. Um, and so in the United States, the United States used to have one of the largest mines in Mountain Pass, California for rare earths. And they kind of cited environmental restrictions along with declining price when they last time they went bankrupt. So they've gone bankrupt a few times. Um, and so for us, we don't really know kind of exactly what the environmental impacts are anymore because, you know, China's the one that's, that's making most of it and they don't have a great track record with transparency, um, for some of their mining processes. Um, you know, there have been reports and investigations into, you know, radioactivity and, and kind of waste from mining processes and they don't really say anything good. Um, and there's also a problem with artisanal rare earth mining in parts of China. So there's, there's parts of China that, that are actually kind of doing their own mining on a small scale um, for rare earths because they're so valuable. Um, and then, you know, you also see companies like Linus Corp are one of the, the main competition or main competitors of China um, for their rare earth market. Um, and they lost half their stock value a few years ago because Malaysia kind of got uncomfortable with having a bunch of radioactive waste on their on their land. So um, I think that's probably the most reflective of, of the, kind of the environmental problems that we'll see um, if we try to develop these in the United States or other developed countries is you, you know, people don't really want a lot of radioactive waste, um, even if it's handled properly. And, you know, China doesn't really have as many environmental restrictions as California does. Uh, so um, we don't really know too much. We can guess, but it's, it's difficult to say, uh, you know, what exactly the environmental impacts are when, when one country is kind of doing most of it and they're not being super transparent about it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and, and you mentioned, I mean, these these small artisanal mines, you know, one of the things that I think people think about when they think about rare earths is, you know, you might think about news stories that you've seen about, let's say, cobalt mining from in places like Democratic Republic of Congo, where the mining can be quite environmentally damaging, but also rely on child labor. Um, is that, you know, an issue that you've heard about in China? Or is it, again, something that's not very transparent? Um, I've, I've heard about artisanal mining in China. Um but I think the process they do is, you know, involving large leaching pools and, and um, it's kind of a different process than you would see in the Congo. So for the Congo, when they do cobalt mining, cobalt um, occurs as, as kind of a, a hard rock embedded in, in other minerals and metals. So that's why you kind of see these, these children miners, you know, digging by hand or because um, they can just pick it up and then they can go to this uh, this middleman and, and sell it to them for, you know, pennies on the dollar. Um and that's that's kind of the process. But for rare, it's, it's a bit more complex. You use, you know, leaching ponds and kind of these chemicals sitting in these, um, you know, vats that are made out of, uh, you know, plastic tarps. Um, so it's not too much of a, a, a mining issue from the artisanal side, I think. It's still an issue in that, you know, they're not being responsible with their mining practices and that, you know, I'm sure that some radioactive waste is leaking out and that they're, you know, using these dangerous chemicals. Um, so it's, it's very damaging to communities in that sense, but it's not necessarily the, the child labor that you would see in the DRC. And I think the DRC has, um, you know, a huge problem with their, uh, 
with their resource governance and that they um, you know are very uh, have a large population that, that could benefit from um, you know sustainable mining practices and in China it's more of China's like uh, it's such a complex process the government's really involved in it and they're really involved in um, mining and processing so it, it's not as big of an issue I think in, in China uh-huh okay that makes sense and you know one one other issue that I think a lot of people are thinking about and certainly has been written about in news stories is just kind of the geopolitical considerations around rare earth. So you mentioned that China has really become the dominant uh, processor and, and perhaps producer of, of rare earths as well. Um, given our current understanding of where the resource base is and also where the processing infrastructure is, are there clear geopolitical winners or losers in the way that the rare earths are distributed or is it all about the processing? Yeah, so there are definitely winners and losers. Um, you know, there's definitely different types of rocks that are easier to process and that might have higher concentrations of the rarest you're looking for. Um, so Mount Weld in Australia is kind of known for that. Um, China does have a large distribution as well. So not only are they kind of the processing powerhouse, but they also do have a large distribution of rarities um, that they've found and that are a lot easier to, to access. Um, so I mentioned different types of rocks and there's some flow charts online you can look up that'll kind of show you the, the different processing steps um, depending on the type of rock you have. And, and China's is really nice and, and neat and, and very clear. So um, they, are, they are definitely a winner in that sense. Um, and they also are a winner in the sense that, you know, it's, it's such a powerful political tool for them that they have invested in it and that they're, they're already set up to win. You know, anybody that kind of tries to, get into that market now has to face, uh, you know, China's price control. They have to challenge China's, you know, commitment to producing despite the environmental costs. They have to face, uh, you know, these, all these other challenges that are, that are associated with this. And also, you know, China has a really easy way of, uh, you know, extracting and separating these as opposed to some other process. So I guess it's kind of like a, a little bit like Saudi Arabia. If we're making an oil comparison, you know, you have the, the oil over there is a lot easier to extract because they have really nice reservoirs. Um, so it's, it's uh, in that sense, yeah, China is definitely a winner. Um, there are really nice, you know, uh, reserves across the world that could potentially compete. Um, but, you know, they have, China has so many other advantages that it's, it's difficult to imagine that um, how we're going to do this without kind of a industrial policy or maybe some some more transparent maneuvering about what actually needs to be done you know instead of just uh everyone saying yeah let's open up more mines it's it's more a little bit more complex than that and until people kind of realize that um china's going to continue to be the main winner and a lot of countries are going to be struggling um i wouldn't say there are any explicit losers um maybe geographically you know if you're if you have a larger um area of land you're probably more likely to find some of these kind of rare earth deposits but uh you know, the U.S. has some, Russia has some, Australia has some. I think China has 43%, though, uh, as far as I know. But it's it's hard to know if that's just because they've been looking for it and doing it for so long or if, you know, that's actually the distribution. Uh-huh. Interesting. So you touched on some of the strategic uh, questions that the U.S. or its allies might be considering, you know, given this somewhat uneven distribution of resources and certainly the uneven distribution of, of processing facilities. Can you talk a little bit about how the U.S. or its allies are kind of thinking strategically about this uh, issue of rare earths? And 
So to do another oil comparison, you know, the U.S. traditionally has kind of focused on ensuring the security of trade routes so that supply can flow to wherever uh, the demand is around the world. Um, is the U.S. In, are the U.S. and its allies taking similar steps or are there other emerging strategies that you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the U.S. is very aware of its um, dependence on, on different materials. So they have um, a critical minerals list or critical materials list, um, as do most developed countries at this point. Um, it's kind of an interesting history for rare earths um, because at one point the United States was the largest producer of rare earths in Mountain Pass Mine in California. But, um, you know, they're kind of focused on a different rare earth at that time, I think is for color televisions and, and some other things. So for a while, um, U.S. was a powerhouse and then China became a powerhouse. And then there was um, this interesting boat collision um, between China and Japan where they got in like a dispute about like a, a boat crash. And what happened was, you know, China was like, well, we're not going to sell you rares anymore to Japan. And Japan kind of, uh, kind of, you know, was really worried about that because, you know, there's, they're so important to so many technologies. Um, and then the U S kind of stepped up again and they're like, all right, we'll make some rares. And then, um, it kind of gave everyone kind of this wake up call where they're like, well, maybe it's not a good idea if, you know, China is the only one that can control rare earths. Um, so everyone kind of started developing these critical mineral strategies. And the U.S. has one. I think it was, the first one was in 2011, right after this boat crash. Um, you know, and they started looking at, they're like, okay, what, what materials are we kind of really worried about? Um, you know, Rarus is on that list. Uh, lithium is on that list. Um, a lot of these, you know, common materials and minerals that you'll hear for renewable technologies, for defense applications. Um, and they, they made, yeah, so everyone made a big list and they're like, okay, how do we start making these things more accessible for us? How do we have uh, more stable supply chains? Um, and so it, every country, you know, has a di little bit of a different approach. Um, you know, Australia is, is kind of funny in that they just like producing things because they're a big mining country. So they're just like, we'll just make a bunch of them and that'll be our strategy. Um, and, you know, Canada is also very mining focused, like maybe we should start investing in mining. Um, the U.S. is a little weird in that, you know, they kind of do have a history of, you know, large mining practices, but um, we've kind of shifted away from a lot of mining in the U.S. So now it's it's more about, you know, kind of making these relationships. And that's a problem in itself because China has been doing it for, for a long time. So if you look at, uh, you know, their, their relationships with parts of Africa, um, you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, China's has probably the most aggressive strategy in that they they've partnered with every every you know resource reserve that they can find and they're helping to develop it and they're really you know spreading out to try and control a lot of these minerals and metals and the u.s is kind of just now realizing like oh you know maybe we should have thought about this a while ago um and so you could you could say that they each have different strategies china's the one that that everyone needs should be comparing themselves to because they've made uh, you know, so many inroads with different uh, resources and reserves. And the U.S. is still trying to figure out if we want to start developing locally, if we want to start making partnerships in, in South America and Africa for different resources. Um, and rare earths are especially difficult because, you know, it's difficult to mine, it's difficult to process, um, and there's environmental issues. So for the U.S., it seems like for rare earths especially, we're probably going to be start developing them in the United States. But it's it's a difficult process, right? Like I was saying um every kind of rock for rare earth is unique and every processing plant is probably unique to that specific location um, most of the time. So it's, it's more complex than people think it is. Um, and United States has started to, to offer, you know, millions for rare earth production and, and to start these processes, but uh, it's still a ways off, I think. And it's 
like I said, it's not as simple as people think. That's interesting. And I was just looking up the boat incident that you were referring to, and I think it's the 2010 Senkaku uh, boat incident, which involves disputed islands between uh, Japan and China, as well as um, uh, Taiwan or Chinese Taipei. Um, And uh, yeah, it's a dispute that's been going on for quite a long time. So Jordy, we've covered a lot of ground in the last uh, 20 minutes or so. Are there any questions that I haven't asked about rare earths uh, that you think are really important and you think our audience should know about? Uh, yeah, so there, there's something else besides, um, you know, revealing that processing is kind of the, the scary part of rare earths, um, is that uh, we don't know how much we'll need. So demand estimates are really popular for uh, when discussing renewable technologies. Um, you know, the, the World Bank's reports on uh, future material needs are are really great and really cool to look at, you know, um, when, when people talk about the material considerations of, of renewable technologies, they say, you know, we're going to need, uh, you know, a thousand percent more rare earths. We're going to need, you know, 400% more lithium for all the batteries we got to make, um, you know, these, these type of conversations. And they're really valuable in that they show kind of how unprepared we are and how, you know, we might need to shift our, our focus um, in the coming years to, to be able to, to go away from fossil fuels to more renewable technologies because renewables are just so much more material intensive than fossil fuels. And that's not something people know about. Um, but, you know, moving one step beyond that conversation is demand estimates are only useful as a scale, right? Like they, uh, they're, they're not meant to, to tell us exactly the amount of, of rares we're going to need by 2050, which is, I think that's something that people are kind of looking at and they, you know, they're like, we need to get these things going right now. We need to have, you know, these production processes at, at full steam so that we can, you know, make X amount of rarities by 2050. And that's not really the way that I think people should view it um, for rarities or for any other um, critical mineral. It's more important in my my understanding to have, you know, a mining institute that's healthy, that understands kind of these, these forthcoming challenges, um, for, for policy to understand that, um, you know, processing is a big concern, that this can be very expensive, that this can be very... Um, you know, labor intensive, it's going to take a lot of different chemicals, it's going to have radioactive waste, it's going to be this huge issue, um, instead of just saying, you know, let's throw money at it, let's make this happen right now. It, it's much more, uh, I think, comprehensive to have a strong industrial policy, um, transparency on these, on how, what we need, and then having, you know, an adaptive mining industry, not a mining industry that's going to make X amount of rares by 2050, but a mining industry that can make, you know, whatever amount of rare it's by we need by 2050, or whatever amount we feel like uh, is is healthy to make, um, instead of you know trying to meet these quotas. Um, and so that's something I always think about with with these demand estimates is that, you know, you always hear economists saying um, all models are wrong, but some are useful, and that's that's something important I think because um, we don't know how many of these minerals and metals we're going to need. We don't know the scale exactly. Um, you know, changes every year as technologies change. So uh, I'd worry less about, you know, making X amount of rares or X amount of, of cobalt or X amount of anything and more about how do we make this conversation um, better and how do we how do we make the mining industry stronger? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And as someone who's thought a lot about it, long-term energy projections, I, I feel your pain on the, uh, the, the you know, tendency for people to look at projections and say, look, that's the future. We know where we're going and reality is... Uh, you know, projections are useful, but they don't necessarily tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, they, they make nice charts and graphs, but uh, 
They do. It's fun to make charts with the with projections for sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, so Jordi uh, Lee again from Colorado School of Mines, the Pain Institute. Uh, let's close it out with uh, our last question that we ask everyone, which is uh, something you've read or watched or heard recently that you'd recommend to our listeners. And I'll start with uh, just a quick shout out to this really cool webcast that is a semi regular webcast uh, from Columbia University. Um, it's the Earth Institute at Columbia University. The webcast is called Sustain What? And it's hosted by uh, Andrew Revkin, former uh, reporter from the New York Times. Uh, and it covers all sorts of fascinating issues related to sustainability. Uh, recently, they've been focused on the coronavirus, uh, but there are all sorts of great episodes about things like wildfire um, and you know digital experiences and science in the news and all sorts of great stuff. And they also have a fun... Um, music and story time that they do on the weekends uh, that I'll be participating in fairly soon. Uh, so I'd really encourage people to check that out. It's the Sustain What podcast from the Earth Institute at Columbia. Uh, but how about you, Jordy? What's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? I'm going to have to check out Columbia then. I mean, I'm, we're big fans of theirs, um, yeah. even though they're our rivals, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for me, I've been reading a lot about um, fuel cells. So I, I don't have a specific book or a recommendation, but um at School of Mines, we have a, a couple of professors that have that are kind of leading a lot of research with fuel cells with uh, the Coors family, funny enough. Uh, um, so I've just been blown away by what I've been reading about um, in academic papers, just the, the way that fuel cell technology has kind of progressed. Um, you know, a lot of people love to talk about, you know, the big three with, uh, with renewable power, um, you know, being wind turbines, solar panels, and electric vehicles. But fuel cells are just such an amazing technology that progressed so much from our um, you know, advancement in scientific understanding. They're very dependent on, um, you know, material processes that, that make these new, you know, super materials that are perfect for, for the way that fuel cells work. And uh, just finding out how much they've progressed and how much they can progress and how they can, you know, be integrated with all these other renewable technologies, how they can, um, you know, make hybrid systems with, uh, with natural gas that you can run them backwards to make a fuel, which is so incredibly useful for renewable technologies, right? Like, uh, you know, everyone talks about with, uh, with solar panels and wind turbines, they're like, well, what if the sun isn't shining or what if, you know, it's not a windy day? Um, you know, and, and that's the problem because, you know, most people use electricity at night and we have the most power generation during the day from, from solar panels. Um, so what you do is you essentially hook them up to uh, a fuel cell and you run it backwards and it, it runs fine backwards it, and it, you know, kind of creates this, uh, this fuel and then you run it forward again and use the fuel as energy. So for me, it's, it's kind of, uh, I'm, I'm sure fuel cell experts and lovers out there are, are screaming, you know, that, yeah, this has been the case the whole time. But, uh, as someone who's, who's mostly focused on, uh, you know, the other renewables, it, it's really fascinating for me, um, to, to kind of read about that. Yeah, great. We should we should do an episode on on fuel cells. I don't, I don't, yeah, we haven't covered that on the podcast, so so that's a great suggestion. Well, once again, uh, Jordy Lee from Colorado School of Mines. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org/support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future, 
RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.